This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey guys, so by now many of you know that we've partnered with Earwolf and we're making some changes. Starting June 19th, our main episodes will still be new. They'll still be free with ads every Monday, just as they've always been. But after they've been up for six months, those episodes are going to become a part of Stitcher Premium, as will the entire catalog. So, you have between now and June 19th to download any and all of your favorite episodes free of charge. Dick Van Dyke, Jimmy Webb, Stephen Wright. Sure, download them for free and take money out of my pocket. And after all I've done for you people. You sound like Grandpa Al Lewis there. Yeah, I I thought so too. (laughs) Or if you prefer, you guys prefer your content totally ad-free, you can also get new episodes without any commercials as of June 19th by subscribing to Stitcher Premium. Now, the mini-episodes will be new every Thursday as usual, but starting June 19th, Colossal Obsessions episodes will be exclusive to Stitcher, including the entire catalog. But again... You guys have between now and June 19th, download everything. So if you love one-hit wonders or you want to hear your name mentioned on a listener mail episode, feel free to go get them now. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash Gilbert. And if, but only if, you use the promo code Gilbert, that's me, you get a month-long free trial and pay just $4.99 per month. Or, and again... Only if you use promo code Gilbert, you get the free trial and pay just $29.99 for the whole year. Hey, that's only $2.73 a month or $0.09 a day. Even the cheapest man in the world could go for that. Could you now? Well, hey! By the way, when you join Stitcher Premium, you get a lot more than our just our mini-episodes and our ad-free main episodes. You're going to get exclusive access to 200 hours of original podcast miniseries and audio documentaries. Plus, you get over 120 stand-up albums from great comics like Louis C.K., Aziz Ansari, and Amy Schumer. You will also get the ad-free archives of some of our favorite podcasts like Mark Maron and Comedy Bang Bang. Our friend Paul Shears, how did this get made, and a lot of other cool stuff. How come Funky Monkey never turned up on how did this get made? You know, it's a criminal oversight. So remember, June 19th is the official launch date. The entire catalog of mini-episodes, as well as any main episodes older than six months, will be exclusive to Stitcher Premium as of that day. Of course, you'll still be able to get our free main episodes at iTunes, at Earwolf, and our website, gilbertpodcast.com. But once these episodes become six months old, they'll no longer be available anywhere other than Stitcher Premium. And Patreon will be changing, too, with brand new offers. We have benefits in the works. We have stuff we know you guys will like. And for those of you that love getting the episodes earlier than anyone else, well, you'll still be able to get our main episodes the night before if you sign up for Stitcher Premium by going to stitcherpremium.com slash Gilbert and using that promo code Gilbert. So, if you need more info or if you've just forgotten everything we told you, as I'm sure Gilbert has, the info will be up on both gilbertpodcast.com as well as our official Facebook page. I'm sorry, were you saying something? You lost me after we're making some changes. 
Well, we love doing this show. Look, it's an honor to pay tribute to the stars we grew up watching, and we're going to keep doing it as long as we can, and we hope you'll continue to support us. Plus, if I scrape together enough money, I can finally pay for a professional co-host. Oh, I can only dream. Hey, if you guys ever wanted to see a live show from your favorite podcast, I've got good news for you. The three-day podcast festival called Now Hear This is happening in New York City this September, and you can get early bird tickets on sale now. The lineup is great this year. How did this get made? Our friend Paul Shear, politically reactive and who charted, plus more of your favorites. I love that title, who charted, plus more of your favorites from Gimlet, Crooked Media, Public Radio, Radiotopia. It's a great value. You get access to all 25 shows through the weekend. And if you buy it now, you get 35% on your ticket. That's 60 bucks. Now hear this September 8th through September 10th right here in New York. Come see great podcasts. Meet the hosts. Make some new friends. You won't meet us because we're antisocial. Go to nowhearthisfest.com to get your tickets. That is nowhearthisfest.com. And do it fast. Early bird pricing ends May 29th. I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. As usual. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here once again with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're recording once again at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Three years ago, we started this podcast in the hopes that we would talk and reminisce with people like this week's guest. To say he needs no introduction is an understatement, but we're going to do our best. He's a writer, actor, director, producer, and one of the most prolific and successful talents to ever step onto a stage or in front of a camera. He's won a Director's Guild Award, an American Comedy Award, a Grammy Award, and nine Emmys for writing, acting, and producing. He's also the recipient of the Kennedy Center Mark Twain Prize for Humor and a member of the Television Hall of Fame, among other honors. As an actor, he's appeared in feature films such as It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and The End. And most recently, the Ocean's Eleven trilogy in the role of the lovable con man Saul Bloom. Memorable TV appearances include Rowan and Martin's Laughing, The Carol Burnett Show, Frasier, Mad About You, over 45 appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and of course, as a key cast member on the landmark sketch comedy shows, Caesar's Hour and Your Show of Shows, where he worked alongside comedy icon Sid Caesar and longtime friend Mel Brooks. 
As a director, he's responsible for some of the most popular comedy films of the last five decades, including The Jerk, The Man with Two Brains, All of Me, Oh God, and two favorites of this podcast, The One and Only, and Where's Papa? And if all that wasn't enough to cement his place in entertainment history, back in 1961, he created, wrote, and produced what is arguably the best and most beloved situation comedy in the history of the medium, The Dick Van Dyke Show. His latest books are Carl Reiner, Now You're 94, and Why and When the Dick Van Dyke Show Was Born. We're thrilled to welcome to the show a genuine living legend and a man who, fortunately for us, never realized his childhood dream of becoming an Irish tenor. The great Carl Reiner. Am I on? <laughs> okay. I, I stopped listening to everything you said when you said I won nine Emmys. Okay. And I said, I've got to correct that. I have 12 Emmys. 12 Emmys. 12. Yes. That's my no, fault. We'll, no, we'll edit was, that it, out. It was tiring. I got tired listening to it because I said, that was a lot of work. Yes. Anyway, Gilbert, it's so nice to chat with you. I remember. Hey, were we on the? Did we? Did we did the um, Joan Rivers show together? Didn't we? Oh, Once we, we did, did the Joan Rivers roast. Yes, you were hysterical on that roast. Oh, as you, thank as you. you, as you always are. Oh, by the way, by the way, did is, are your eyes open yet? <laughs> uh, anyway, you're a gem. You're a treasure, as I call you. Oh, thank you. That's nice. Didn't you guys meet on a plane? Yes. I think the first time we met was on a plane. I think so. Where were we going? Uh, probably either to L.A. or from L.A. to New York. Okay, I'll have to check my my uh, old, um, uh, what do you call it, calendars. We'll find it. And I remember you telling me then, you said, oh, my son's a big fan of yours. He is. He was and is. And I, now I became a big fan of his. I just saw a movie he he produced and directed and wrote and helped. It's called Shock and Awe. I just saw it a couple of days ago. It is something. It is something. And I, I got to boast on him because Rob was the producer of it and the director. The last minute, Alec Baldwin was supposed to play the lead of, a, of the uh, editor of the Knight Rider newspaper. And he conked out. Rob took over and did one of the greatest performances I've ever seen him do. That kid can do anything. Wow, wonderful. What a body of work he has. You know, as a matter of fact, I'm, I tweet a lot. And last night I got a tweet said, Rob Reiner would be a very good president. And you know, a long, long time ago, he was. they were asking him to run for governor way back. He's, he's one of these, the brightest... Human, one of the brightest humans I know. We follow you on Twitter, Carl. You do? We do. <laughs> if I can get totally out of any form we had, can Please I talk do. about 
Rob Reiner's uh, greatest accomplishment when he was a little boy. <laughs> I know where you're going. He, he, he grabbed Mary Tyler Moore's ass. No, no. Here's what happened. He's, <laughs> he used to come to watch the. Uh, he and Albert Brooks came to watch the rehearsals. He was like 14 and 13, 14, I guess, 14 or 15. Anyway, and Albert, I must have said uh, he dared him or something. I don't know what it was. But she was up in the stands where he was saying, for some reason, she was up there. And as, as she passed by, he patted her on the behind. And, <laughs> and, and, Mary, and Mary came over to me and said, you know, she's. I should. I. I wasn't upset, but I think you should know. Your son patted my behind, and I called him in the office. I said, "Rob, did you pat Mary's behind?" He said, "Yeah, Dad." I says, "Don't do it anymore." That's all I said. I, everybody wanted to do that. <laughs> but by, the, by, the, by the way, twenty, fifteen years later, we had a revisited a big show, and Rob was now twenty-five years, twenty-three years old. They met and. She, she reminded him of that. She said, remember, Rob, when you did that? He was so embarrassed, he apologized again. She said, no, no, no. I want you to give you a, give it a good grab. And she put her posterior out, and he, he gave her a good grab. She said, now, isn't that <laughs> you, better? You, you reenacted it. Re-enact- that's, that's great. And, and as we talk about that, I'm so sad, and I see that smiling face in front of me. The girl who turned the world on with a smile is no longer... With us, yes. Well, I'm ba- I'm barely with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, t- tell us about Ken. We, we just had your friend Bill Persky on the show. Oh, I Carl, love and he, Bill. Yeah, and you guys you, go way I, back. I, I, I know a word about Bill. Yeah. For the for the first three years, I wrote the show called uh, Head of the Family. Uh, Thirteen episodes, all written. And when I it didn't work, I did it as an actor. It didn't work, and Sheldon Leonard read the scripts and said, this would make a wonderful, I love these scripts. And I said, I don't want to fail with the same material twice. And he says, you won't fail. We'll get a better actor to play you. And that's <laughs> Great Sheldon Leonard. <laughs> and, he, and he suggested Dick Van Dyke. And Mary, I looked at 23 people before I saw Mary. And when she came in the office, she didn't she didn't want to rehearse, audition that day. She had like three failures that week, and she was reluctant. But when she walked in, and I saw that smile that lit up the room, that hair and those gams, which are called legs these days, um, I said, "This is it." And I remember Sheldon. I when I I said to Sheldon, "You know, I've seen twenty three girls. I don't know what I'm looking for." Said, You'll know when you see her. And I made my hand into a claw that you see at the arcade that picks candy out of a machine. I walked across the room, grabbed the topple of a head with my claw, walked it down to Sheldon's office and said, I found her. She's here. That was my Mary Tyler Moore memory. And now she's gone and it's it just doesn't seem right. 80 years old is not enough. No, no. There's a good line in one of your books where you say you've always re- you were always good at picking wives, that you picked a good one for yourself. And you picked, oh, yeah. a, you picked a good one for Rob Petrie. I, I did say that, didn't I? Yeah. Well, I sure picked a good one for myself, 65 years with, with the right woman. And and your wife is famous for, like, a line. Oh, sure. Yeah, Rob, Rob Reiner did a picture called uh, When Harry Met Sally. And uh, he had this one line in the delicatessen. And he called his mother. He said, Ma, you got to fly out here. She said... He was in New York at this time. She says, there are a million 
women in New Yorker could do that line. He says, nobody can do it like you, Ma. And I tell this story because Estelle did have a way with with one-liners that she popped out of that popped out of her every once in a while. She was the comedian. She was everything else but humorous. This is a line I love repeating. When my daughter Annie was now a, I call inarguably the world's greatest singing psychoanalyst because she's a psychoanalyst, but she has a voice like a mother and sings in clubs when she can. But um, I said, um, um, what do you want for your 16th birthday? We were talking about, and her brother, three years older, said, why don't you get a nose job like your friends do? And I said, wait a minute, Annie. Her mother has a bigger nose than Annie's, and look at the handsome guy she got. And then my wife said, yes, it's not the size of your nose that counts. It's what's in it. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> and and. And I was doing a, 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 one of the Steve Martin movies, and I told him about it at the time. Ten years later, he calls Estelle. He says, Estelle, can I use one of your lines? She says, what are you talking about? He says, your husband once told me you, you said this line. And she said, oh, yes, of course you can use it. And there's Cyrano de Bergerac saying, it's not the size of your nose that counts. It's what's in it. Oh, and Roxanne. It Roxanne, That's great. right. You know, as long as we're talking about Estelle and, and the Van Dyke show, I don't know that people know that she was the inspiration and that she read a pilot that was written for you. You gave it to her to read, and she said, I think you can write a better, I think you can write a better sitcom than this. Oh, yes. That, Estelle, everything I've ever done, including uh, when I first wrote short stories, I was a teletypist in the Army. And when I came home, I wanted to see if I could still type. So I typed out a short story Four pages, I gave it to Estelle. Where'd you get this? I said, I wrote it. And she said, you wrote this? And I wrote a, a dozen of them. And then I, they were good enough for somebody to send to somebody to read. And I at a party, somebody said, these are wonderful. I, I, I know it was at a party of a friend of mine, Julian Rochelle, who was a, a textile manufacturer. And there was a guy there and I, who said he read the books. I read the uh, book. Uh, the short stories. And I said, why did you give the guy a book? He said, uh, he wants to have lunch with me. He said, do I have to have lunch with everybody who read, read these short stories? He says, what is he? He's in pocketbooks, he said. What does he buy? Linings for his pocketbooks? He's not those kind of pocketbooks. Simon and Schuster pocketbooks. <laughs> and, and I said to my wife, gee, I don't know how to write a novel. I don't have enough words. I only went to Georgetown University. The Army sent me there for a year. She says, you have something more than words. You have feeling. And that's when I wrote my first novel, Enter Laughing. She's always told me, you can do it. And I did it. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love the fact that you're not good enough to play the part of Carl Reiner. Oh, and head <laughs> of the family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Laura. Had a hard day. Why is he in the closet again? He spent half of his six years in closets. You know he's beginning to smell like a camper ball. Troubled by Mark. Oh, honey, I get paid to write bad jokes. That's why the show smells. <laughs> what was that? You said a wrong thing. What wrong thing? Look, honey, it's almost six o'clock. He should be watching television. I should be eating dinner. Why is he locked in a closet? Because he's upset. If he got out of the closet, he wouldn't be so upset. That's what's upsetting him, being in a dark closet. 
You know why he's in there? Yes. Well, are you going to tell me? Robert, your son dislikes you. What are you saying? How can he dislike me? I'm his father. Some children have been known to hate their fathers. He's only six years old. He doesn't know me long enough to hate me. <laughs> That was a breakthrough. My God, when the, the, the Dick Van Dyke show was the, the situation comedy at the time, and then came Norman Lear with breaking it open and making Biggest sound like Biggest. He had everything. In that. It was it really broken open for uh, the, the truth, the total truth. We found it difficult to get a, a, an African-American in the show. I was always trying to get an African-American in this white neighborhood. He broke it open for everybody. He did. And how was Dick Van Dyke chosen to be Carl Reiner? Oh, Sheldon mentioned him. I went to New York, saw him in Bye Bye Birdie with Cheetah Rivera, and there was no hands down. I said, that's the guy. Dick is the most single-talented man I know. He can do everything, everything. You know, it's funny. Uh, Steve Martin, who I consider a, a true genius, he, he's not only a, an actor, and a, he knows everything about everything, about art, about uh, collections. and He just knows everything. He's one of the brightest men I know. As a matter of fact, his biography, Born Standing Up, is a, 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 you, you can't put it down. It's just thrilling. And so he said, you know, Dick Van Dyke is the single most talented man that ever was in our business. He can do anything. And he's, he's 90 now, and he's still jumping and dancing and tap dancing. Yeah, we, had him, we had him on here. It was a thrill. Gilbert got to sing with him. Oh, yes. <laughs> we sang supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And put on a happy face. I did oh. two duets with Dick Van Dyke. Oh, my God. Isn't it amazing, 90, how he still can jump around? And he dances every day. Hey, how old are you, Gilbert? Uh, oh, God. <laughs> I uh, Physically, I'm older than Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> no, you're, no, you're not. <laughs> I know you're not as tall as him. You're about a few inches shorter. Oh, oh my God, yes. Oh, by the way, yeah, I, I didn't finish about Billy Persky. Yeah. Well, the, those first three years when I did the show... Uh, I was the uh, I was a producer. I was a story editor, and I I wrote the first uh, f fifteen or thirty of the first sixty episodes. I was all alone, and until Persky and Denoff, uh, Bill Persky came in and he wrote a show, and he and I used this phrase, "Billy saved my life," because he came and took the burden off me. He wrote some some of the best shows we've ever done. Sure did. And, uh, and I say that all the time, and every time we speak on the phone, I call him the man who saved my life. And Marshall and Belson and, and, and Jerry oh, Paris. And, there's so oh, many Marshall, people involved. Yeah, Marshall and Belson. I'm so sad about that. You know, Gary just left. And yeah. Belson, who was just a, just the darlingest person in the world. You surrounded <laughs> yourself with wonderful people on that show. I lucked out. When you have a product that people want to work on, it's, it's, it was lovely to track these people while we wait for gilbert to find the men's room <laughs> we promise we'll come back to the show after a word from our sponsor don't go away 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Live from Nutmeg Post, we now return to Gilbert and Frank's amazing colossal podcast. I gotta ask you just a quick synopsis of your childhood. Yes. Yeah. So just where where were you born? And every, I was. Fo- 179th Street and Belmont Avenue in the Bronx on the first floor in a bedroom. That's where I was born. People were born at home then. Um, and I went back years later. I was doing, New York Magazine was doing about our early days. I went to see my five-story building. It's not there. It's gone. Raised. There was an empty lot with bricks in it lying around a few bricks. I took a two bricks Brought one for my brother who lived there with me, and I have a brick of that house yet. But that's my early days in the Bronx. And what did your parents do? My father was a watchmaker and an inventor. He invented things. He had patents, and uh, he invented a, uh, a clock battery, a mil- uh, 5,000 amps and 1 milliamp, and it ran a clock. He said it would run a clock, a, a pendulum clock for a hundred years, and it ran for 60. Wow. It would have run for a hundred, but it shorted out. When my mother passed away, he put the clock in his uh, bag to come to California with me, and the, the the two posts were shorting, you know, it, it shorted out, so it lost 40 years of its life. And you know something, this is like the most synchronistic crazy thing my nephew was living with my father was living with my nephew at the time, and the day my father passed away is the day the clock stopped. Nobody, we, nobody would believe that, but that wow. was true. And your parents were like like immigrants. Yeah, my father came in 1900. My mother came at about the same time, and she was uh, no, she a few years later, and he came over when he was a 20 year old. She came over as a one year old, and she was her like. A Romanian Jew? Yes, she uh, she was from Bucharest. She was a very bright woman who was illiterate. Nobody ever taught her to read and write. Someplace in this room here, I don't. I found this is a, the most incredible thing. I found a diploma. My mother had d- graduated from school. You know what she graduated? And, and the diploma has got all kinds of signatures, Dr. So-and-so, Professor So-and-so. It's a big diploma. It says, Bessie Reiner is done is a graduated student of this and is fit to go out to the world, whatever it is. All this flowery talk. She was kindergarten. She graduated kindergarten. So she, and she had this graduation paper so she can work in the, you know, child labor laws, she had a, she was working in a flag factory as a finisher, cutting off little strips of the flag when they cut them, when they sew the flags, always a little thread hanging. Mm-hmm. That's what she was doing. And when the Geary Society came to see if there were uh, 
child labor working there. They put her in a bin and threw hundreds of flags on and said, don't move. And my mother remembers not moving for an hour sometimes, just under all these flags. Wow. Now, this is this is my mother's background, and she never learned to read or write. And every time there's something in the paper, she would say, uh, I haven't got my glasses, read it to me. But she was so bright. She, uh, My father said, you know, she handled all the money in the house. He was a watchmaker working the house. She handled everything without knowing how to read or write. We never knew that. My brother and I were 12 or 15 when we said, I don't think mom can read. And it was true. You know, when, when I wrote my first book, Enter Laughing, I sent it to my parents. And uh, my mother called and said, oh, we love the book. And uh, I said, you, you, I know she couldn't read. And I said, you did? She said, yeah, well, Papa read it. And she said, but I think we got the wrong book. And I said, why? She said, well, at the beginning, I think we got Estelle's book. And she didn't know that I, I dedicated the book to Estelle. I said, and she figured that the book that was signed to her, she figured it was signed by, you know, she didn't understand. I was so so sad to know that she didn't know about a dedication. You talk in one of the books, Carl, about the, your parents introducing you to comedy by way of the Marx Brothers. Yes, oh, the uh, my father and mother always loved comedy. And the radio, I was always on in our house. My father built the first radio that we ever owned. He had a storage battery from the from the uh, garage that uh, powered the powered the uh, radio, and we used to listen to Amos and Andy was the only show on, and Lowell Thomas in the news. But they, when radio did hit its stride with Eddie Cantor and Jack Benny and Fred Allen and Joe Penner and Fibber McGinn, Molly, we watched and listened to radio all the time. And my folks always took us to see movies, comedies, and the Marx Brothers and the Ritz Brothers were were our Bible. Joe Penner. <laughs> Want to buy a duck? Yes. Sure. Now, did you ever work with Groucho? Yes, I did. I uh, when I, I wrote and uh, performed on the Dinah Shore show, I had a wonderful, <laughs> I love this. I worked on the show as a writer with Charlie Isaacs, and every other week I'd be on as an actor. And when there was a star on, they say, and our guest star this week is Yves Montan. And when I was on, I was called the, and our not-so-special guest star this week is Ken Carl <laughs> I, I love that. So that's where I met Groucho. He came on the show, and, and uh, he lived on, near me, and we went over in his house often, and we just chatted, had a wonderful time. There's a story, too, about Groucho. Uh, it was, your, it was your, one of your plays where Groucho, gave, uh, one of the plays that starred Gabe Dell, Something yes, different? Yes, yeah, something different. That's a true story. Uh, that was m maybe the best thing I've ever written. I wrote a play when it basically was interesting, too. I, I was uh, in between projects, and my secretary said, we have nothing to type. I used to type it out. She'd retype it, retype the page. And she said, nothing to type. And I said, and one day I, I typed out something, and I gave it to her. I said, hey, retype it. It was just nothing. She started to laugh. I wrote another page, she started to laugh, and I wrote a thing called Something Different. It's sort of a Pirandello-ish thing, and it was maybe the best thing I'd ever written. I sent it to New York. The very first producer who saw it said, we'll do it. And from the time I wrote it to the time it was on stage, it was like, what, two or three months. 
and I had a wonderful cast. And in Boston, it absolutely, it was, you, you couldn't get a seat. We sold out for a month or two. We got to New York. The sad thing happened. The critic for the Times, Walter Kerr, had left. And the dance critic, Clive Barnes, took over, and he didn't get it. He didn't get the show. All he reported was the audience seemed to be having a great time, but I'm not sure why, or something like that. And so instead of having a real big run, we ran for about 100 performances, one of the saddest things. And uh, one day, uh, near the end of the run, um, when the audience is applauding, um, a guy stands up and runs to the, one of the audience and runs toward the stage, turns to the audience and tries to stop them from applauding. He holds up his hands. Gabe Dell was about to jump off the stage. He's a crazy man. <laughs> and he heard the voice. He didn't recognize him because it was Groucho without his mustache. And it was Groucho, <laughs> and it was Groucho saying, don't, don't applaud, don't applaud. Well, your job is to go back to your neighborhood, tell every friend you know, everybody you see, that the greatest piece of comedy entertainment is at the theater. It's called Something Different at the Court Theater. Come down here, buy tickets, and keep the show running. That was Groucho. And I never forgot off. I thanked him profusely, of course. It's a God, great story. What an honor that is. Oh, yes. Oh, it was. It's a funny thing, Carl, that you're a kid listening to the Marx Brothers or watching the Marx Brothers, and and, then years later, he's jumping up and down in the audience about your play. I know. I met the other brother, Chico, in New York many years ago when I was... uh, We did a show together. He had a show, the Chico Marx show, and uh, he was so taken with the way we worked together that I called his brother and he said, you know, we did a thing called Flywheel and Ravelli. He said to me... Two shyster lawyers. He's. I'm going to ask my brother if I can have the rights to it. We can make a television show out of it. And I wasn't interested in really, but and I was happy that that uh, it, he couldn't sell it because, of course, Groucho said, "Sure, go, go, please do it." And uh, it, it, he couldn't tell it. Thank goodness. But I knew <laughs> all of them, and I said to Groucho, "Was you know, you never talk about your brother, Harpo." He's what's there to say about a nice guy? He's just a dear man. He's just he's quiet and he's sweet. There's nothing to say about him. He's just he's too good, <laughs> too good. <laughs> yeah. And you started performing, I think, in, uh, during World War II. Before World oh, War II. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I started performing when I was uh, working as a machinist helper. I I went and I always thank. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the government. We have governments now. This guy who works, I don't know what his name, Trump something. Uh, <laughs> get the, you know, he wants to take care of their, their, their Obamacare away. He wants to lower the minimum wage. We had a government during the Depression, the WPA, free acting classes for, my brother found a little article, free acting classes at, 100 Center Street. Your brother, Charlie. Charlie, yeah. yeah. And so uh, I went there, and Mrs. Whitmore, an old English teacher, English um, a professor of drama, taught us. I worked there for almost a half a year. And at that time, I started auditioning, and I got into a, 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 a play called the Gilmore Theater, where I worked six days a week doing The Bishop Misbehaves, 
and I got no money for six days, six nights a week. Cost me thirty-five cents to eat dinner. I couldn't afford. I was getting eight dollars for for a machinist helper, and so uh, I, I came to him after a year, and I said, "I can't work anymore for no money. I don't have money for dinner." He's okay, and he shut the door, and he said, "I will give you a dollar." I said, "A dollar a performance? No, a dollar a week." He says, "If you tell anyone, I will rescind it." <laughs> 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 and so I got a dollar a week. <laughs> what What was the fir- that? So the first job, uh, kind of showbiz job, was was summer theater. Was it? Was it? I know you were emceeing in the no, hotels no, too. No, no, the first job was that one. That one. Was, okay. I, mean, I wore. T- I bought a tuxedo for ten dollars, uh, and the bishop, bishop misbehaves. Somebody saw me when I went to the bathroom. And, and, uh, supposed to go backstage. The backstage was closed when I was going home. I ran to the front. And I'm at a urinal, and a guy looks over at me, and he says, saw you in the show. You're very good. You want to do summer theater? And that's where I got my first summer theater job in the toilet. <laughs> and I went I went to the Rochester Summer Theater, and I worked there for two seasons, the 24 shows. And part of your act was doing impressions. You did Ronald Coleman and Akeem, oh, no, Akeem no, Tamaroff? No, that was later on. That was later I, on. Okay. When I, when I went to the Army... I, you know, and when I was in the army, I started going to rec halls and doing impressions of uh, actors, and and I, I worked up an act, and uh, and I finally, when I went overseas, I was on my, I was a teletype operator on my way to, didn't know it at the time, Iwo Jima, and uh, and uh, Maurice Evans had an entertainment section at the time, and he was doing Hamlet, in in uh, Gene, you know, in GI. Closed. I went to see it, and it was extraordinary. I went at the, at the uh, University of Hawaii, and Howie Morris, an old friend from the NYA Radio Workshop, another one of those things that Roosevelt did. We got $23 a week to do three radio shows a, a week. Uh, and Howie said, I said, Howie, you were ladies. You were wonderful. He says, you have an act. And I said, yeah, but he says, come and audition for... It was Alan Ludden was the captain. Yes, that's and, great. Yeah, and uh, George and um, um, what's Ma- the name? Ma- Maurice Evans. Ma- Ma- Maurice Evans was the you know the commander. And my friend Saul Palmer says, "Go away, go find out if you're any good." So I went down there. I did my act. I did impressions, and uh, they wanted me. And I said, "I, I fellas, like I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm going someplace. I don't know detachment 18." And the next day, I hear my voice. A voice on the loudspeaker of my barracks report to the uh, office, and they had traded me like a ball player. They called General <laughs> Richardson of the Pacific Command, and they said, we need this guy, and there I was. So for the next year and a half, I entertained the troops. The act I want to describe, because I, I did it all over the Pacific uh, for one year. This is like a bad Dan Daly movie. My, my outfit actually invaded Iwo Jima, which I didn't know I was going there. I was, But what happened is when I entertained, did all the islands in the Pacific, Saipan, Guam, Mogmog, and Awitak, Johnson Island, Palau, and one year I'm entertaining troops all over. VJ Day, we land in Iwo Jima, and there... There were 17 different installations. The first installation we hit in Iwo was my old buddy. So there I am, starring in a show I had written 
with all my buddies that I hadn't seen for a year. And thank God every one of them lived. Everyone, none of them got killed on the invasion. Wow. What were we going to say, Gil? Oh, I, I was going to say a number of years ago, Frank took me to an autograph signing convention. Yep. And I was walking around the room and somebody screamed out when they saw me, it's that loud mouth fucking Jew. And I Jeez. turned around and it was Howard Morris. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Goopy. Uh, yeah. yeah, Howie Howie and I had a long time together. We were, as I said, an NYA radio workshop together. And when the day he went to the army, uh, when he was being called up, I said, they won't take you, Howie. You're only 112 pounds. You had to be 115 or something. And uh, the next day he came in as they took me. Is what happened. He says, I was thirsty in the morning. I drank three glasses of water. <laughs> says, That's how we got in. Years after, when I was in a touring in uh, Call Me Mister, there was a very tiny part of a, a two-line part of a general a young general was supposed to look like 12 years old. And I, I got Howie at our job. And so we toured for a year with Howie as, and playing that general, which is a tiny part. What, but, uh, we, what we was, had a long history together. What was Monty the talking dog, Carl? Do you have any oh, rec- that was, recollection that of that? Was, <laughs> that, was, that was the thing that got me in. Um, <laughs> I came I came out on stage with a, with a leash and a little dog, uh, you know, uh, jacket. And it was, I put it on uh, like a cage, and I said, uh, I was very sad. I said, gentlemen, sorry, but uh, the act that was going to be here today is no longer possible. I said, uh, this is uh, this is his leash, and this is it's Monty the Talking Dog. He did impressions, the greatest impressions ever. <laughs> no, nobody's ever heard impressions like that. And I said, you know, I said, I can do them for you, but they won't be anywhere near as good as what Monty used to do. And it doesn't remember this is a dog. That's what made it interesting. I'm a guy. So many people do impressions. And I did my impressions, got a lot of laughs. <laughs> and then I said, and there's one impression Monty did that I won't even attempt. He did uh, Roy Rogers' horse, Trigger. He used to do Trigger. He used to put on a lot of fur. Oh, you, you got to see it to believe it. <laughs> So that was that was the act I did all over the Pacific. And you did impressions. You did Tam, uh, Akeem Tamaroff and uh, yeah. Charles Boyer. Charles Boyer, yes. And uh, Jimmy Stewart. Do I have this Jimmy, right? Jimmy Stewart, yeah. And Durante and uh, Tamiroff. I remember I, uh, one line. I don't provoke. Said in- <laughs> That's a good Akeem Tamaroff. <laughs> yeah, he said that. And what was the name of that movie? Uh, a very famous movie, Hemingway. No, I don't. I forget. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to Gilbert and Frank. And a lot of a lot of talk, but yeah, the, you can't talk about it enough. And that's the when you were on your show of shows with Sid Caesar. Yes, and uh, Howie. Yes, yeah. and yeah, that's right, Howie. Uh, of course, tell yes. the it was an insane group of writers. That- well, we had the best. I I considered it my college. That's where I really learned to write. Sitting in the writers' room with them, and it was uh, of course Mel Brooks, the 
When I came, Mel wasn't even a writer on the show. He was a friend of Sid's getting $35 a week. And I first time I saw him, he was doing his Jewish pirate. I walked into, <laughs> I walked into the room and this little guy standing there say, you know how hard it is to, to, uh, to set sail these days? Is what they're charging for sale, Claude? $3.95 a yard. I can't afford to pillage and rape anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time I heard Mel. The following Monday, I came in, and I I remembered him doing that. And I, I saw We the People speak, a thing on television where they do the news. And I went up, and I said, here's a man who was actually at the scene of the crucifixion 2,000 years ago. That's when he became the 2,000-year-old man at the... And the next 10 years, we did it at parties, private affairs. And it was 10 years before Steve Allen convinced us that it was not anti-Semitic. We thought it was only for Jews and non-anti-Semitic Christians. But he made us put it on record. And then it became, you know, a staple of comedy. Now, you, I heard that among the people who are fans of the 2,000-year-old man was Cary Grant. He was. I gave him one. When we, we were both at university, we had a, a little uh, bungalows near each other. And one day he came by, uh, and he, he was passing by, and I, I waved at him, and I said, I'd like to offer you this. And I gave him an album, and he came back the next day. He says, can I only have a dozen? I said, why? He said, I'm going to England. And I said, you're going to take it to England? He said, yes, they speak English there. <laughs> and, so, and, he, and when he came back, and uh, this is true, he came back and she, she loved it. I said, who? He's the Queen Mother. He said, took her to Buckingham Palace. And I said, at that moment, I said, the biggest chicks in the world loved it. We're home free for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what was the thing about Edward G. Robinson? There was something at a at, at a party. Uh, I know George Burns said, "If you guys don't record this, I'm gonna oh, oh, I'm gonna swipe it." Yeah, no. Uh, at one of those parties where we, the people used to make parties, so Mel and I can get up and do this. It was Steve Allen, and one by one, it was uh, first one was George Burns said, "Is there is there an album on this?" And I said, "No." He says, "You put it on an album. I'm gonna swipe it. I'll swipe it." <laughs> And then it, uh, Edward G. Robinson said, is there an album? And I said, no. He says, I'd like to excuse me, I, I'd, I'd like to do it on Broadway. I'd like to do that Thousand Year Man on Broadway. I said, it's 2,000. He said, I can do any age. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it was Steve Allen who said, fellas, you got to get in. I have World Pacific Jazz Studio. It's a, you take, the, take your microphone and just wail. And Mel and I went there, and he said, I don't want to be part of it. You saw us. You want to burn it, score it, whatever you want to do with it. And so we worked for two hours and cut it down to 47, and the rest is thanks to, thanks to uh, that wonderful man. You, you've lived so long. Did you ever have an accident in all this time? An, an accident always. An accident. Oh, an accident. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Yes, in the, in the year 61, I was hit, uh, I was run over by seven men fleeing a lion. <laughs> they ran me over. And that, that's the extent of all that. But the... they didn't have insurance, I didn't have insurance. <laughs> there was no such thing then, uh, so you laid there till you got better. What a maze there. 
In the 2,000 years you've lived, you've seen yes, a lot of changes. Yes, certainly. What is the biggest change you've seen? In 2,000 years, the greatest thing mankind ever devised that I think, in my humble opinion, is saran wrap. <laughs> you can put a sandwich in it, you can look through it, you can touch it, you can put it over your face and pull around and everything. It's so good and cute, you can wrap it up. You equate this I with... love it. You can put three olives in it and put a little one. You can put ten sandwiches in it and make a picture in it. Whatever you want, it clings and it sticks. It's you great. equate this with... You can look right through it. You equate this with man's discovery of space? That was good. <laughs> Millions of books and CDs sold later. Yeah. No, Steve Allen was just a dear, dear, dear man. I heard stories about, maybe it was Jackie Mason who said it, but like when Jews were afraid of anything too Jewish, and so like Steve Allen would have like Jewish performers on his shows. Oh, yes. By the way, James, uh, just, uh, Mason was... He was the best. I had him in the movie, uh, The Jerk. Oh, he's in, in The, the jerk, jerk, sure. Oh, the, yes. the gas station you bet. owner. <laughs> yeah, I just loved him. He was he was one of the funniest men in the world. He could really ad-lib funny. And, and Maurice Evans is also in The Jerk. You gave him a job, your old... Uh... Yes, you know something, and I didn't want to uh, because I was looking for an English actor to play a butler. And they said, we have a Morris. I can't ask Morris Evans. He's my major in the army. <laughs> and they said, but Morris asked to do it. He wanted to get his, his card, his, uh, act, his screen actor guild card. And I had him. But the day he came in, I stopped everything. And I told every grip and everybody, I said, this is Major Morris Evans. I said, one of the greatest Shakespearean actors. I said, the only actor who ever did a complete version of full full-out version of Hamlet, a five-hour version of Hamlet on Broadway. That was brilliant. Anyway, they gave him a big hand, and, and I, but I, I felt so bad. It's like we did it on the show of shows where Sid Caesar was a big star, and he, he had bad times, and he ended up doing radio in Australia because he couldn't remember a line. That was the sketch, and all I could think of is that sketch. <laughs> but he's great in the movie. Oh, he's wonderful. Yeah, he's a good, good comedian. Oh, he's wonderful. And and tell us about Sid Caesar. Sid Caesar was the greatest comic that ever worked on television. There was no doubt about it. Everybody who ever watched television knew that he was the king. And Caesar is the right name for him. Uh, you know, all that double talk he did. When I came on the show, I knew I'd never do my... I did double talk in the army, and I did in my act but not anywhere near what he did. As a matter of fact, I knew I'd never do it again. And uh, as a matter of fact, that's how I got in the writer's room. One day I got an idea for something and uh, how I might be able to use my uh, double talk. I said, why don't we do foreign movies? I take off foreign, and somebody said, what are you talking about? And I picked up a pack of cigarettes and I went over to Sid and I started to sell it to him in double talk. And he handled with me, he bargained with me, he didn't want too much to pay. And so that became a, a staple of ours. We went, every week we'd go to a French movie, an Italian movie, a, Spanish, a Japanese movie, and we'd do takeoffs of, of silent movies, French movies, farm movies. But the double talk was uh, uh, something I could do, but not anywhere near what he did. My God, he was a, the master of it. And he was 
aside, I mean, brilliantly talented and funny. Oh, but, was he ever? But he was also, but he had like uh, demons, of course. You know, he was. Yeah, he, yeah, he had a dr- drinking problem at one point. And he had another demon. He couldn't be himself. He never could come out and say, Good evening, I'm Sid Caesar. Welcome to your show of shows. He fumfed his. If he give, give him a character, make him uh, the, the the professor Jim Richardson, whatever he could wail for an hour. He could he he did more ad libbing on the show and got more laughs than weren't written just by finding things on the show. Once I had actually bit my lip and was bleeding because I was laughing so hard at something he had found and was continuing to to mine. And. We had someone on the podcast who told a story. Was it about him accepting the award? He uh, couldn't yes. accept the award as himself. Yes, he he was he was falling all over himself, you know, stammering. Yeah, he yeah, couldn't that's speak. Him. And someone yelled out in the audience, "Say it in German." It might have been Mel who yeah. said, yeah, "Do yeah. it, do it in German." That's that's right. That's right. He did. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely right. So Mel Brooks yelled at? Yeah. I remember I remember one thing, one particular sketch. We played two barristers in England, father and son, uh, who were going to be opposite each other in a courtroom. I was the prosecutor. He was the defense attorney. And he says, uh, he's, even though you're my father... I know I fight you tooth and nail or something. I may, I don't know who was, he was my father. I fight you tooth and nail, even though I haven't many of my teeth left on my nails. <laughs> anyway, we did, we did this thing where we, we, we played pool together and we had the pool table scored so that every time he hit a shot, I would take my pool cue and hit the, you know, the wire above and say, good shot. And, We'll move a little thing over, and um, we had the the uh, the felt scored so that at one point he hits a pool cue into the felt. He puts it under the felt. He rips it, and then he pulls it up and rips the table. And there's a big felt rip in the table. And I say, "Good shot!" And I put. Now he goes to the other side. We don't know if there's a warp and a woof to a table. There was a little scoring there, so he can get his pool cue in it. When he got it in. And pulled it, it didn't rip. What happens is the pool cue broke in half. <laughs> and that's almost sent me out. He grabbed the hold of that cue, and I knew he was going to do something. He walked around the table looking for his next shot. You know, he, had a sh- he had a shillelagh in his hand. <laughs> and, and he was looking, and I knew I'm going to bust. And he, what he did is wind up like it was a polo mallet. And he whacked at one of the balls and knocked the ball off the table, hit a wall, and I had to say, good shot. And I and I, I really bit my lip. I was bleeding. <laughs> bleeding. <laughs> I remember the two of you, and it was more later day that you reenacted it, where Sid Caesar's a great magician, and you're interviewing him. Oh yes, and I and I I put my finger under a handkerchief and put and pulled it away, and the finger is gone. Yes, <laughs> and then I put put it in, and it's there again. How did you do that? Yeah, yeah. He was always the great magician Jim Richardson. He was always Jim Richardson. Yeah, 
And I remember but, Sid Caesar. I want to tell you one oh, that okay. made me that again made me laugh so hard. We were we were watching a a, 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 a horse race. I was in a foreign country, and he was the Shah of something, and he had all this this turban on, and he had a a sword on his side, and um, you know he had a gun on his side, strapped to his side, and we're watching the the mudders are going by, and mudders come flying out of from the horses' hooves, and we're getting full of mud. But oh, before that, before that, we're watching and hearing uh, you know the sounds from the audience, and and. Um, he says, before we have that ceremony, we drink of the gucha yucha juice. <laughs> and there's a ram's horn. He's got a ram's horn in his hand with gucha yucha juice. Now, Sid was always worried that the, the, um, the property master was going to give him dirty water. So he always hated to drink anything on stage. He, he always faked drinking from a glass. And I knew this is going to be, he's going to have to drink. The, we're going to drink from the gucha yucha juice. <laughs> And so he says, uh, "Wait, I drink first. And uh, <laughs> he, he looked. He looked into it a long time, and I know it was going through his head. He was saying, "Oh shit! I hope it's clean." And for some reason, this wasn't rehearsed. He took the gun out from his holster, and he he shot into the into the ram's horn. There was a a squib in the thing, you know. A, 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 a real squib and a bang, it made a loud noise. And then he looked and it killed whatever's in there and he drank the gucha yucha. Well, I, 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 I couldn't, I had to turn away. I had to turn away. And, and, and he named it gucha yucha juice. Also, also a gifted physical comedian, said Caesar. I mean, people talk about the dialects. I'm thinking about the, this is your story. With, oh, yeah. with, 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 with I mentioned before, with Howard Morris's Uncle Goopy. Yeah, and, I mean, and him and Howard physically peeling themselves off of each other. I know it's it's he, maybe he, the funniest he, sketch ever ever put on television. And by the way, that ran twice as long as it was meant to because it was all ad lib. When Howie hung onto his leg and he walked around with him, well, the, even getting him out of the uh, um, audience yeah. when he was said, uh, "This is your life." He was supposed to react like I don't want to go, and he was supposed to pull away. But what he did. Was take his his uh, overcoat and hit the guy in the, in the head, knock him down, <laughs> just and, he ran, and he ran up and down the center theater, which is a tremendous theater. It was a good five minutes of trying to catch him. They finally caught him and carried him on stage. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't rehearsed. That was Sid not going on stage. Just then, just magnificent. And can you name the writers who who worked on that show? Oh, absolutely. Well, the, 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 the head writer was a guy named Mel Tolkien, a Canadian writer, and Lucille Callan, also a comedian. They were the two original writers. Um, uh, Mel Brooks came on uh, a little later. He was a friend of his, and they, Max Lieben. Oh, here, I, somebody handed me a picture of all the writers. Um, uh, at one time or another, uh, Aaron Rubin was a writer. Aaron he, Rubin, you know, yeah. He, yeah, and... Uh, Joe Stein, who adapted Enter Laughing into a music, into a book, into a play on Broadway, who wrote uh, Fiddler on the Roof. And then there was Danny, Danny and Doc Simon, Neil Simon, who wrote 37 of the great comedy plays of all time. Uh, there was, uh, uh, oh, I said Aaron, oh, uh, who is this guy here? 
Well, well, this is Aaron, Aaron Mel Brooks, as I said. Larry Gelbart, uh, did we forget? Oh, Larry Gelbart, yeah, Larry Gelbart. And then years later, when I left the show and Sid was doing a couple specials, this was a, we did 50 to 54, and then we did two years of Caesar's Hour. And then he came back and did a few specials, and he said, we got a new young uh, red-headed writer. We always had a red-headed writer. It's not, we just happened to have three in the... And it was Woody Allen. Woody Allen was six, eight, 16 or 17 at the time. That is, they said he wrote on the show. It shows he couldn't. He was a baby then. Murderer's Row. Yeah. And with, with Sid Caesar, with the drinking and his general craziness, I heard he was... Uh, what what kind of weird things would happen with him off camera? Well, he was very quiet and very, he, he you know, he and Imogene were, were very friendly, but they couldn't say a word to each other. They were he he thought she was wonderful. She thought he was. And they were they were like uh, from an, uh, you know when they did their uh, their pantomimes and things. Uh, they, that's where the only time they contacted each other. <laughs> and the, the sketches. But, uh, no, Sid was, a, I remember one thing about Sid I'll never forget. When he, he, got, he got, he got, he was one of the first millionaire, uh, you know, salaries in the business. And when at the very top of his game, he bought a house in Sands Point and he invited us all to come out. His kid was uh, very young, my daughter, and my Robbie and his little son. Anyway, and we're out in the pool we're lying in the pool on a raft, I think. I know we're floating on our backs, and, and Sid is paddling, and he's looking around at the pool. He's got a three-hole golf course, which you can see, and, he's, and the line that came out of him was so brilliant. He looked and said, huh, isn't this better? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is one of the... The most understated lines of, isn't this better? (laughs) (laughs) We jump around here, Carl, as Gilbert warns you. Let's talk a little bit about the jerk. Okay. Which, and and again, Maurice Evans, we talked about, we talked about Jackie, uh, Jackie Mason. Two, two other wonderful actors, uh, uh, M. Emmett Walsh. Oh, Emmett Walsh was wonderful. And Struther Martin. Yeah. Two wonderful actors. They were both in the jerk, yes. Yeah. You know, you you mentioned the jerk. That I'm going to. Um, there was they were going to have a screening of the jerk in about two or three weeks, and uh, that's when I get my hands in Grauman's Chinese. And uh, the jerk was one of these happy things that fell into my lap. Uh, it was started, and uh, they needed a director. It's, Steve Martin had not done any acting. He was maybe the biggest stand-up comedian in the country. He did a stand-up with no jokes. He made people laugh, but never told a joke. He was doing venues of 46,000 people in the ballpark. And now he's going to do his first movie. And he had never talked to anybody. He always talked to an audience. But boy, it was the first day we knew he was, he he had it. He just had it. He was Steve's, you know, genius category. And uh, he he made everything funny. and, and a good director doesn't have to do anything. All he has to do is either hire or have somebody hire a great comedian to, to front the show and all just say, okay, start going. And then after they finish, say, that all you got? 
<laughs> I remember this, that part. You show up, of course, as Carl Reiner, <laughs> yes. the director. And Steve Martin had invented these glasses. That yeah, the op- optograb. Optograb, yeah. And it right. caused people to be uh, cross To turn into Ben Turpin. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Oh, what, yeah, what happened is that uh, you had a little hook in the front, so instead of pulling on the temple of your grasses and sometimes getting them out of skew, you know, get them askew, if you pull them from the front with a little, a little, it was called optograb, a little ring, you, you just pull them right off your face. And so the optograb became very successful. But... There was a there was a, uh, a problem. <laughs> a problem. A lot of people looked at the optograb and they went cockeyed, and so there it was. And I, they had a picture of uh, me wearing optograb, and I was with my eyes crossed. They say they didn't even have the the, the sense to try it out on prisoners. <laughs> It seems that an irate group of citizens, led by the celebrity Mr. Carl Reiner, has filed a class action suit against Mr. Johnson and his Optigrab. Here's what Mr. Reiner had to say at a press conference. When Optigrab came out, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I bought a pair. And this is the result. This little handle is like a magnet. Your eyes are constantly drawn to it, and you end up cockeyed. Now, as a director... I am constantly using my eyes, and this optograb device has caused irreparable harm to my career. Let me show you a clip from my latest film, where my faulty depth perception kept me from yelling cut at the proper time. Cut! If I had yelled cut on time, those actors would be alive today. That's why I'm spearheading the $10 million class action suit against Mr. Johnson and his irresponsible selling of a product he didn't even test on prisoners. Thank you. Well, Gilbert loves the gag. Yeah, there's there's a part you're saying that a tragedy occurred on your last Oh, oh yeah, yeah, because of the... Because of the optograb and, and the uh, tragedy, it could have been avoided. And we got a stock shot of a, a car going over a hill and crashing. And you hear him say, and as it crashes, he says, cut. He, says he, he, should have, he should have said it before he went over the hill. Anyway, so that was, yeah, that was the joke. Do you remember where uh, you guys turned Carl Gottlieb into Iron Balls McGinty? Do you know, do you know where that came from? Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, where he, <laughs> he kicks him he, in he the learned, groin. Steve learns, learns karate, <laughs> and he and all of these guys come at him, and one after another, he, he hits him with a karate chop, knocks him at the door, and then McGinty comes at him, and he kicks him in the balls, and you hear clang. <laughs> <laughs> Dick breaks his foot. He didn't know. He forgot all about Iron Balls McGinty. <laughs> Just great. <laughs> oh, and I remember that the way... Steve Martin gets the idea for that that attachment is because of the actor Bill Macy. Oh, Bill Macy, right? Is yeah, his yeah. glasses keep still sweating. with us? Yeah, yeah. So the, he invented the yeah, Steve invented the optograb, 
Yeah. Anyway, it was a, it was quite a good movie. Tell us a little bit about Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, uh, Carl, which I watched again this week and uh, just fascinating. That's, that's my favorite thing of, of, of doing, of, a labor of love, labor of love. Uh, myself and and Steve and uh, what's his name? Uh, George Geib. Yeah, George Geib. A guy, a, guy a, a writer came with a script that I wasn't going to use, but and I told him it wasn't quite right for us. But we went to lunch one day and and we and I got the idea of uh, using old movies and, and incorporating a, a live dick in it. I mean, uh, Steve. What am I saying, Dick? That's another movie. That's the comic. <laughs> right. Um, and so for six, uh, Steve was doing um, um, a musical at the time, and we had six months uh, working, myself and George Geip, looking at old movie, black and white movies, and we were going to interstice uh, Stephen, and I remember looking for little lines, like a line. Well, that could be a line of dialogue. I remember getting his name when Charles Lawton comes, so calls a character. He says, hey, Rigby. I says, hey, he's calling. And we had a, Dick, uh, Steve was going to play opposite all of these dead actors, most of them dead, and intercut with them. We'd, we'd have a story. And we did work out a story, uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Uh, by the way, it was Steve's title. And we never knew what the title was. And at the very end, he, he, he says, Dead men don't wear plaid. Dead men don't wear plaid. Never knew what that meant, <laughs> Stephen. <So, laughs> Edith, anyway, Edith Head's last film, by the way. It was, yeah, it was Edith Head's last film. And uh, she, uh, she came to the set a lot. She brought a, uh, a hat that had been used by Eva Gardner. And there was no... Second, you know, usually have a, a replacement hat, and she wanted to make sure nobody d damaged it. So she'd be on. I remember her being very old at the time, and and she was. I remember saying, "Why don't you lie down on the couch?" And I covered her, and let her sleep. She was very old, and but what a great, great woman! And credit goes to Michael Chapman and your old uh, your old collaborator Bud Molin. Oh yeah, Bud Molin did all of the Van Dyke shows and. Did a sensational job of editing. The editing on this show is so much fun. We went, spent days and days and days editing, and it's seamless. It looks like we, Steve Martin, had to play everybody. He had we had all these dark-haired actors from Raymond Land who were talking to the other actors. The back of his head mm -hmm. had to be black. So, oh, it was a real labor of love. It's my favorite. Work project. I just love working on it. You watch it, and you're trying to figure out how did they do this. See, I've heard you say it was like solving a crossword puzzle. It was exactly right, exactly that. And you got to play your von Stroheim. Yeah, yeah. I gave myself a good, a good job. The first of many times that you played Eric von Stroheim, that you sent up Eric von Stroheim. No, that's the best version of Stroheim I ever did. Yes. <laughs> I, I love Rachel Ward in it. Yeah, when she's, she's great. You know, when she's listening to the two of us explain how we did it. She listens to uh, to her lover's explanation with a smile. And when I explain, she's gr grimacing at me. <laughs> we, we said, I have the right to tell how it is done. No, it's the right of the... Uh, <laughs> anyway, that was the, one of the funniest endings. You mentioned the comic, too, before, in passing. Yeah. 
which is yes. which is also and speaking of Aaron Rubin and yes, and an, another one of your labors of love. Well, the comic I think, and I've said this before, if people take a really good look at it, they'll they'll see that Steve that uh, Dick Van Dyke. Oh, they owe him either a, a nomination or a winning of Academy Award. That was one of the great performances. He played a sourpuss uh, man. Uh, and by the way, a, a clear-cut version of of many comics of the day who were drunkard. And, 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 and uh, as a matter of fact, Keaton, uh, uh, Armstrong, there was a guy named Neil, Neil Hamilton, they were all sad, sad people. There's a, 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 a scene in it where the character goes to a bar, gets drunk with a woman he doesn't know, and they're slobbering on the table. Next thing you know, them they wake up in a the bed. They're married, and and actually, Buster Keaton or somebody actually married somebody he didn't know he married the night before. Wow! And that was in there. What about the scene of driving the car up the staircase through the through the through the front door? Oh, oh yes, you remember that? I remember. He crashes the car through the door. Yes, and, then, and yeah, Mickey Rooney has to tell him it's the wrong house. Yeah, he says you're in the wrong house. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to get rid of his wife. He's throwing all the the furniture out of the room, window and all the clothes, and then he gets in the car and drives up the wrong driveway. And and by the way, we had a bill that. Uh, that interior of a house that really looked wonderful. And I remember there's a scene where he's watching it like it's a memory of his that he's watching like a movie. Oh yeah, at the, uh, yeah at the at the uh, yeah forget me not at yeah. the very end of the movie it's like uh, it's like the baker's chocolate where you see uh, the picture of the chocolate on the box and there's another picture of the chocolate on the box and he's watching an old movie. I say that because. One day I'm watching a, a, the movie on the screen here in my house, uh, and I'm sitting there, and I'm watching the end of the movie where he's watching himself watching a movie. Dick Van Dyke is watching his own movie, and I'm watching the movie I made of a guy watching, and my son Lucas comes in the front door watching me watching the movie, watching <laughs> the laws of parody. Surreal. And and I remember there's a scene at the end where he's old and forgotten about and ruined, and yeah. he he has the alarm set, and yeah. he wakes up in the middle of the night to watch one of his old movies. Very touching. Forget me not. That's what he's watching, and that I love the end of the picture where she's blind, and he goes off down the road, and his wife, his blind wife. Touches his face. She's her hands are full of mud. She puts mud on his. She doesn't know it, and she's she waves goodbye. And her mother turns her. She's waving the wrong way. She's going down different road, and she turns the blind girl so she's waving correctly. Yeah, that was a lovely moment. So it was a composite character, Carl. It was it was a little bit of of, of Stan Laurel, a little bit of Harold Lloyd, a little bit of yeah, Keaton. right. Yeah, Laurel was not an unhappy man. But Keaton and uh, and uh, Lloyd Hamilton and a few others like that, and his best friend there is uh, also a composite. Yeah, Mickey that was Rooney. A, Cockeye. Mickey Mickey Rooney was playing. That was the strangest thing ever. I said, "There's nobody can play Chester Conklin character who was a, a cross-eyed comic in those days. Uh, they 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 laughed at cross-eyed people, and so." He, 
I said, there's nobody. And I remember the first day I said to Mickey, Mickey, you don't have to keep your eyes crossed. You keep your head down. And I said, only when we do close-ups, you know. We'll... So I said, you, so don't. He said, uh, I can't cross my eyes. And I thought he was joking. He can play every instrument in the band. He can do every accent in the world. He can do every, he's the single most talented human ever at that time. And, and, and he said, no, I can't. I said, I could teach it to you. Just put your finger by your nose and look at your finger. He couldn't do it. We had to get a prosthesis made for his eye. And the prosthesis had to be put in by a doctor because he couldn't stay more than a few seconds. His eye would tear up and get red. So I remember having to say, roll camera, put in the eye, action. And the doctor would put in the eye, cut, take the camera, and he'd sit there. It was, it was the most amazing thing. A man who could do anything couldn't wear a glass eye. I, I remember an interview someone did with Sammy Davis Jr. And they said, you're the greatest performer in the world. And and Sammy Davis said, no, Mickey Rooney is the greatest performer in the world. Yeah, they, I think he, he might be close to something. Of course, Sammy could say that because he probably was the greatest performer in the world. He certainly was the... The most talented tap dancer, singer, he just, he just can do everything. We got to ask you about Where's Papa, Carl. It's, 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 if you'll indulge us, it's a favorite of Gil's and mine. Okay. And it's just, uh, I, I've heard it described as ahead of its time. I guess it was. I read, in, uh, read, I guess it was in one of your books. You said as, as of the printing of that book, it still hadn't made its money back. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, which no, is it's, which uh, I find unbelievable. Yeah, Robert Klein wrote the uh, wrote the book, and uh, they said they want to adapt it. I read it, and I said this can't be done. And they said, but he did it. I said, well, then if he did, he wrote a scream. I'll do it. I knew it was a, 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 a going uphill all the way, but it was it was fun doing. The people in it were wonderful. They don't make and, truly black comedies like that. Any, I mean, yeah, that, I know, I know. It didn't do as well as they had hoped. And we had Ron Liebman on our podcast. You're no kidding. We had Ron here, yeah. 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 And there's a story about you shooting him running naked in the park? Yes. Under under the watch of the police? And the police yeah, and the police came. We did it early in the morning, like 2, 3, 4 in the morning. And the, and we were crossing the street on to go to the building, and the policeman showed up. And, and and I said, where the hell's his underwear? Put his underwear. What is he doing? And he ran into the building. We got the shot. I said, I don't know what happens. They, the policeman let us go. I think he knew we we had been fighting the law. We did an, we did a, a short episode of this podcast where we just talked about where's Papa. And I'll, oh. I'll say it again to our listeners. Uh, you've got to see this movie. Find it. <laughs> Yeah, Ruth we'll Gordon, George Siegel, Ron Liebman, Trish Vanderveer. If you like to see uh, Ruth Gordon kissing uh, George Siegel's ass, <laughs> <laughs> biting it, I think, <laughs> biting him. Yeah, <laughs> terrific film, really terrific. And and Frank and I were talking about your singing. Yes, uh, he's known. To, always, he's known to sing I a song always, or two. I always wanted to be uh, an opera singer when I was a kid. And uh, uh, actually, when I was very young, I wanted to be an Irish tenor because my father 
had a friend called uh, Max Kalfas, who was his friend in in uh, Austria, but he had a brother called John Calvin, who used to have a radio program every Sunday morning, and he was he would sing Irish songs, and he said, "My name is I." John Calvin, and I'd actually sing a song my mother sang to me on, when I was a wee lad. And I thought I could be an Irish tenor. And I remember the song I heard. I'm a long way from home, and it's there that I roam, to all air and far over the sea. Oh, me heart, it is there where the skies are so fair, and old Ireland is calling me. Oh, I want to go back to that tumble-down shack <laughs> where the bright roses bloom round the door just to feel on my head whether... Anyway, that's the song. But <laughs> I still remember it. <laughs> but, I, but I really want to be an opera singer, and the only problem I had is I sing off-key and out of rhythm. <laughs> Otherwise, I, I did have a good voice, and I, I haven't done this in a long time, and I'm going to try it. From Leon Cavalli's Vesti Pagliacci, I will now sing for you Vesti La Juba. I'll go as far as I can. Okay. <laughs> and you can you can you can cut me off anytime. No, you no, want. no, this is a gift to us. Recitar mentre presso dal delirio non so poeficetico e quel che faccio e pure duapo sforzati ba Seto forso nom tu sei pagliacci <laughs> vesti la giuba e la faccia in farina la gente paga e ride vuole qua e se la leghin t'involo columbina ridi paglia I'm getting dizzy. That's <laughs> phenomenal. I, I, you know, hearing your speaking voice, yes. it, it is so amazing to hear you sing. <laughs> He's got pipes. Well, yeah. Yes. No. I'm. I'm not in good shape these days. I've. I'm t- approaching ninety-five, and you don't. I had a bad day yesterday, and today is not much better. This is a good part of the day. And right now, I'm about to say goodbye and lie down in my bed and watch the news and see if Trump has trumped himself out of out of office. Do we? Can we get to ask you Billy, uh, Billy Persky's question? Yes, yes, yes. He wanted, I asked Bill. I said, we have Carl on tomorrow. Do you have one question? And he said, ask him about the Royal Air Force exercise scissor kicks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. There was a thing called the Royal Force Exercise, and I used to do them. i get out of bed and do them every morning. And uh, after a number, you, you work from 10 to 20 to 30. I was up to like well, 400 or 300 uh, runs in places. And at one point, uh, they do these scissor kicks, and I was doing, I did them on some sh- Show. I, I was doing this, always showing, oh, it's Marty Landau. I said, how the hell do you do these, oh, yeah. the hundred of these scissor kicks? I said, I'm dying. The scissor kick was a run in place. It just, you're, you're, to relax, 
I was doing them up in the air. <laughs> one way and then the other way. I did 100. I almost had a heart attack. And, and that, that, was the, that was the scissor kick, yeah. Can we just throw out names to you before yeah. we... Well, one, of course, Jerry Lewis. Maybe the most talented comedian ever. No question about it. Also, so gifted in many areas. Invented the three-camera technique, watching yourself filming a thing... Uh, um, you know, he was big. He was the biggest star that ever lived when he and Lewis Martin were together. I first met him when he, he, he came to see Call Me Mr. in Chicago, in uh, Boston, and he introduced himself. He's where at the Latin Quarter. I'd like your cast, bring your cast that I pay. You're getting $1,500 a week. And I saw the funniest human being I've ever seen in my life. It was a monkey, but hilarious. The audience was roaring. And from then on, he developed and developed and developed. And at one point, he was the biggest star in the world. There's a documentary on him. I, people were dying to, to see him. He turned into, uh, he knew everything about everything. He was, uh, he, he just was a genius category. That thing he did when he did that, that uh, in, in, uh, in Florida, that one-man movie where he... Oh, the bellboy? Bellboy, yeah. Yeah. That was an incredible piece of work. Carl, we got to plug your, we could go on for hours. We're going to plug your books. Okay. We could go on. We didn't get to a lot of stuff. And, and if you're up for it, we'll do another one down the road. I'll tell you about these two books that I have with me. Can you see this one? Yes, we can. He's holding it up. Uh, Carl Reiner, Now You're 94, A Graphic Diary. A Graphic Diary. I love this book. And this one I love because it's about... The favorite episodes that I did that were based on my wife and I's experiences, but I have two more books coming out. That that one. Second. Oh, that's called the Why and When of the of the Dick Van Dyke Show. Uh, then there's one called uh, Too Busy to Die. <laughs> How and, many books uh, do you have coming out, Carl? Th that's one coming out. Well, amazing! Just, just been sent to the printers, but one coming out next week is a title that I love. It's called, You Say God Bless You for S Sneezing and Farting. <laughs> <laughs> and here, here's Hold the Hold it book. up so we can see it. There, so I love the cover. Yeah. That's great. Carl Reiner, Too Busy to Die, and it's a picture of Carl primping his, uh, his bow tie. Yes. It's great. I want to plug the other books, too. The ones I bought were I Remember Me, which is great. My my Anecdotal Life, which you wrote a bunch of years ago. Uh, yeah, I, we, ha we have to send you those others. We have two other books called... There's a trilogy. There's called I Remember Me, I Just Remember, and What I Forgot, forgot to, to Remember. remember. Yeah, yeah, Make sure we send... Full of send great Gilbert. stories. And let me plug the children's books, too. Oh, the children's book is called... Uh, well, there's Tell Me a Silly Story and Tell Me a oh, Scary oh, Story. Yeah. Oh, Tell Me a Silly Story, Tell Me a Scary Story. But I wrote another children's book called uh, The, the um, Treasure of Takapaka, which is illustrated, a beautiful book. But the fart book is going to be, you know, I didn't write the first fart book. And many books on farting have been written. The first one written by, in 1760, by Benjamin Franklin called Fart Proudly. Look it up. You can. Buy I it have a copy of it at home. You do? Yeah. That's I, I always get a kick that Mel named the uh, the the uh, the governor in the bla in Blazing Saddles. Right. What's right. the what's he, the connection there? You tell us. Uh, Petomain. Yeah, Le Petomain. Yeah, well it, he was the famous guy who 
farted songs with his. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There was there was, there that's was comedy old, history. Years ago, from Canada, there was a thing called a crepitation contest. That was a, a radio broadcast. Maybe the funniest thing of all, where they had a crepitation contest. Who could fart the loudest and best? And there was a farting post, and uh, they named them. There's that's a three, another three, and not and not flutter blast. And uh, and the last thing was, I never forgot the ending of that. It was, and he's he's going to scorn the use of the farting post. Here he goes. A three, a three, another three, two flutter blasts, another flutter blast, and oh, he shit. <laughs> oh, and I got to ask you something I forgot to ask before when we when you mentioned him. We're not letting you go, Carl. That's Max Liebman. Yes. Uh, that became uh, Max Bialystok in Mel Brooks's The Producers, didn't he? I, I don't know that... Uh... No, no, not really, because Max Liebman was a really bona fide producer. Max Bialystok was a guy who was no, he he invented that. A guy who uh, who who got yeah no. Bial Max Liebman found all these wonderful people we're talking about. He he had a, he was a the only man who could do a a weekly show because he worked at Tamament and he did a new show every week for three weeks. When he finally got on television, he he's my God, we got to do a show every week for for thirteen to thirty two weeks, and he did it. And he had Sid, who did a monologue every week. There, you have a monologue after three weeks, you repeat your monologue. Carl, we could go on with you forever. We want to thank Sal Maniachi who set this up. We want to thank Bess, your assistant. Yes, thank you. I'll tell him. And we want to thank Larry. And thanks He's for right here. Thanks for He's doing here. this. And and you talk about being ninety four and having bad days, and yet you're busier than ever. You're booked. I, yeah, I, yeah I know. But you're writing but I, books. You're appearing yeah. on TV. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, and uh, the thing I'm looking forward to in March, uh, they're doing Oceans with Sandra Bullock. Oh, oh yeah, they're Oceans doing a female. Eight. Right, Oceans Eight. Yeah, Ocean's 8, and they asked me to be in it, so I'm going to have a little bit part in that. Look forward to that. Wonderful. Well, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And once again, we've been recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. We have been talking all this time to the great, the legendary Carl Reiner. Goodbye, darling. Carl, thanks for taking the time, buddy. Thank you, Carl. 